0: America, where money grows on trees and streets are with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong I was. The first night I stayed at my friend's run down apartment in the slum near Chinatown. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people were in masks, ring doorbells, uh, and uh, trick or treat. <laughs> I said to myself, What have I got myself into? <laughs> and Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later to America, then we marry the next year. I, <laughs> I also assume just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then after years of an unresolved issue and self-centered living our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that year, May 15, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school, he made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her, making our son gay. So my son Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be because there's nothing I can do about it besides. Isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responds quite differently.
1: You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change that he was born gay. So he said, If you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have come me with a knife. It would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope. As my world fell apart around me, I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way end-track ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time, before ending it all with only my purse and a pamphlet from the minister. I bought on the train, and thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems, never be much reader, on the train I began to read a pamphlet, which explained, the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners. Yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I caught a number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me
0: after six weeks I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife the lady was very very excited she told me your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ she has been saved I was not very pleased I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has got on her side. (laughs) But what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know, God was also work on me. So I start going to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding of love, God, and His Word. While we'll study the Bible in my church in BSF, I also surrendered my life. To Jesus Christ. God became the glue. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to Himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son walked further and further away from God.
2: For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. (laughs) You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had give me the gifts of music, of sensitivity. And Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. Th- the first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. At that young age... I was confused and afraid of those feelings without any parental guidance on sexuality. Those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I began living openly as a gay man, and I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now to be really clear, not all gay men do drugs, not all gay men are promiscuous, some are, some are not, but unfortunately that is part of my story and when I tell you it I have to be honest. But I also need to be honest to tell you that when you encounter Christ, He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I was poor, and if I was going to do drugs, I had to find a way to support my habit. Well, I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. You see, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration, expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents would do anyway? (laughs) To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, It's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they are going to support whatever decision the school made. You see, my mom knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But you know, the reality is many times people might go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they will return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of their career, the idol of their retirement plan, and in essence, we often force our children to do the same. Think about this. Parents, are you putting more emphasis upon your children getting their homework done on a daily basis, getting a better grade, getting into a good school, or should Christian parents Be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis Upon their children following Jesus Nothing is more important, my friends, than following Christ But I have to be totally blunt with you I was not happy about my mom's decision (laughs) She wasn't on my side, I felt She was on the school side So I moved further away from them To the big city of Atlanta, Georgia And there, I quickly took over the drug scene In the gay community And I became a supplier to other dealers In over a dozen states In addition, it was nothing For me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters Each and every day Because according to the world I had it all money fame drugs and sex i had exchanged the truth of god for a lie and i began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator because in my world i had become god
1: leon and i had no idea that christopher was doing drugs but we knew his biggest need was to know jesus christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed, Love you forever, Mom. Little did I know he never read them, and simply tossed them into the trash.
0: My wife and I knew the only way if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta. So we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call a friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offer my son, Christopher, my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused. But I left it on his counter anyway and walked out. We found out later he took my Bible and threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife started, to begin to pray a very bold but very dangerous prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, She fasted every Monday for eight years, once fasted 39 days for our son, Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, interceding for our son, Christopher, praying for herself, Pray for me and pray for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers. And following is one of that prayer.
1: I was staying in the gap for Christopher. I was staying until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I was staying in the gap every day. And there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede, though it may take years. But I give you my fears and tears. As I trust, every moment I plead, I prayed those prayers for eight years. And it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, mm-hmm. that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said. We are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of His grace as God drew us to Himself each and every day.
2: Often answer to prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were... Unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf Like the persistent widow My mother bombarded heaven with her prayers She knew that he was going to take nothing short of a miracle To bring this prodigal son to the father And a miracle is exactly what God did This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I started with a bright future among society's finest in academia and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say whenever you need something just just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more to trouble than anything else. Well what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember she loves bold prayers? Well, she had prayed specifically, years ago, that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So, mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. (laughs) So, I was down to the bottom of the list, home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul is not saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out His grace and drawing me to Himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, (laughs) because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down and next to the phone happened to be a calculator, and she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is is in a safe place (laughs) compared to before, (laughs) and he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed she kept adding to this list And after my years in prison were done this list of blessings Is longer and taller than she is Both sides Three days later I was walking around the cell block And actually I I was really doing all that I could to stay to myself. I mean, think about it. I did not want to mingle very much with those really, really bad people, you know, those criminals. <laughs> I passed by this garbage can. And if you've never been to jail before, they don't take the trash out every day in jail. So the garbage was overflowing out of the can. It reeked, flies were circling around it. And I looked at this pile of rubbish and I thought to myself, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctors. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, And it was a Gideon's New Testament. (laughs) I took that New Testament back to my cell, and I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking, this is the Word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking, this is the answer. Actually, I merely thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The prison guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffle into her office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read H I V. Positive.
1: A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. "Ma, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy in the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence a verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn in my broken heart like a knife, aimlessly. I stumbled up to my prayer closet. I dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet under the cross. I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet string of a hymn filled my ears and repeated over and over. It is well, it is well with my soul.
3: my way when sorrows like sea soul. It is well, it is well with my soul.
2: A few days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself and contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there in the bed and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There's graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But somebody had scribbled something else in the corner it read if you're bored read jeremiah 29:11 for i know the plans that i have for you declares the lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation in Israel to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I'd done in my past, He still, He still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day, and the next, and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that. At that moment, I got down on my knees, I said a sinner's prayer, and then everything after that was perfect, like no more problems. Far from the truth. God began convicting of my dependencies, which I had a lot of idols. The most obvious one was drugs. I'm in prison for drugs. That's the most obvious. But you know, within a few months, God delivered me from that bondage. God kept bringing into mind other idols. There were many. But there seemed to be one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. But as I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, which was my sexuality. So I went to the chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. Remember, I'm a brand-new Christian, which means I know very, very little about the Bible. And I'm thinking to myself, logically, right? I'm thinking to myself, I need to ask someone who's went and studied the Bible. He even went to cemetery. I mean, seminary. And so I looked, I asked him, and to my surprise, he actually told me, oh, the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality, and he even gave me a book explaining that view. So think about it. With much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God and His Word. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. Which meant, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture, looking for justification. You know, I wanted to find any type of a positive affirmation. I thought, you know, let's just set aside these six passages that seem to condemn homosexuality, which, of course, we cannot. But I was thinking, let's just, for argument's sake, let's set them aside and look at all the other verses in the Bible. See if there's anything that might actually bless homosexuality That might actually have a positive affirmation For a monogamous same sex relationship So I went through the whole Bible I went cover to cover several times I had time I looked and I looked and I looked And I couldn't find any So I was at a turning point And a decision had to be made Either Abandon God and His Word live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or, abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I was and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the months and the weeks of abstinence passed, I learned several important lessons. First of all, I learned that abstaining from sex is actually possible. I know that might sound weird to you, but remember, I was not a Christian, so for years, the world kept telling me that it's not possible, but it actually is. Who knew? Second, sexual abstinence, I learned, will actually not make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. (laughs) Third, I realized after abstaining from sex for a little while that really, my sexuality Should not be the core of who I am I told myself before God loves me unconditionally And that's so true But unfortunately as sinners We like to add to God's truth I added God loves me unconditionally And then I added So therefore God doesn't want me to change Similar to your friends who say God loves me just the way I am So leave me alone But after reading the Bible several times I learned (coughs) That unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. (laughs) Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. You see, my identity, yes, my identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity should not be grounded in my sexual desires. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It is not even heterosexual for that matter Because my identity as a child of the living God Must be in Jesus Christ alone (laughs) God says, be holy for I am holy You know, I thought in the past Before I had become a Christian That somehow if I were to become a Christian That I would have to become a heterosexual Which meant that the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite-sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to resist sin. So actually, heterosexuality might be the right direction, but it's too broad. It's not the right goal. Besides, God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be homosexual. Holy, for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the right goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon... I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling because we all will struggle, I don't need to focus upon whether I'm tempted because we all will be tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations. Remember Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue, my friends, is that we yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life. And He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I, where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the U.S. federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on a ministry after prison, I needed to learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called up collected my parents, And I told them, I think God's calling me to ministry. And then I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. (laughs) (laughs) They mailed the application into me to prison. And I was so excited when I got it, I tore it open and began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison, (laughs) but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released... I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month at Moody in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? (laughs) I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my Master's in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College graduate school, the same uh, Master's that Pastor Barry uh, got as well. And then in 2014, I received my doctorate of ministry from Bethel Seminary in 2014. And and amazingly, yes, praise the Lord, miracle. And then back in 2011, I had the incredible honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two. My mother wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same story told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal. But the best part is how God and His power and His grace brought us all back together. Our book now is in seven different languages, including Chinese, Spanish, Korean. There's 100,000 copies in print. And we found out lately that Christian high schools are using our book with the study guide at the back, free study guide at the back, as a textbook. Who Who would have thought of that? A textbook. Because if you think about it, and I hope you realize this, whether you're in America, whether you're in Canada, our children today are being flooded with resources on sexuality, all from a non-Christian worldview. From kindergarten, it's mandated. And even if your children are homeschooled or even in Christian schools, don't think they're immune. If they have friends or that aren't going to Christian schools or going to public schools or they have access to Internet... You know, I really, really strongly believe the main responsibility to teach our children sex education does not belong in the hands of the public schools. And even the main responsibility doesn't, and I'm talking about the main responsibility doesn't even belong in the hands of the Christian schools if your kids go there, or even youth group. They better talk about biblical sexuality because where else are they going to talk about it? But you know where should be the main place? You know who has the main responsibility? Parents. Parents. (laughs) Mothers and fathers. Because I want to say something about fathers. Fathers, you teach your children to be responsible, to be courageous, to be bold. But when it comes to talk about sex... Oftentimes, fathers, you're the most scared of them all. Let's change that. Amen? Let's change that. Let's change that. Any fathers that want to say, I'm going to, and I'm going to continue, may you continue to. Any fathers, I want to see at least one. Any fathers that's going to talk to the kids about biblical sexuality, let's see them some more. How about over here? Fathers, and you know what? It's not just fathers I'm going to add to that. Not Grandparents. Not just parents, but grandparents and great-grandparents. Any great-grandparents in here? Great-grandparents? How many grandparents? I want to say, raise your hands high. You know why I'm adding you? You have too much time on your hands. (laughs) But to be serious, if you think back, grandparents, great-grandparents, when you were younger, when you were a child, when you were a teenager, how much did you actually listen to your parents? Maybe... Grandparents, great-grandparents, you have more of a listening ear to your grandchildren than the parents do. Let's not waste that. Let's use that to shape and form our grandchildren, so they're not drowning in a sea of confusion. Actually, it's a tsunami of misinformation. So let's commit to that. We spoke at this church in Oklahoma and gave like, this challenge and this grandmother ran back to our book table. She ran back to our book table. We have book tables uh, out here and, and even in the satellites. And, and, and she ran back to the book table in Oklahoma, and she's like, I need 10 books. She was really determined. I need 10 books. And I was like, whoa, you just need one. No, young man, I need 10. One for myself, nine for my grandchildren. She said, I'm going to mail tomorrow every one of them a book. I'm going to read it with them, and I'm going to discuss it with them. A grandmother, that's a grandmother that's taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have to not expose, we're not exposing, we're equipping our kids, grandkids, great-grandkids with biblical sexuality because silence is no longer an option, amen? So biblical sexuality, what is that? So I wrote that intentionally to help us better understand, because oftentimes when we talk about sex, maybe your parents talk to you about sex, and it's something like this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And actually, those are important messages. But let's realize you can't build a Christian life on God's no. No. What's God's yes when it comes to sexuality? So I wrote this book. It's called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. Sex, desire, in relationships shaped by God's grand story. And God's yes when it comes to sexuality is what I call holy sexuality, which is chastity in singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. But God really has, uh, you know, given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. And my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, about uh, as a two-generational ministry, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor because he's brought me back to Moody Bible Institute where I'm now teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? But God has done far more abundantly Beyond all that we have asked or thought So how do we run this race? You know, a lot of times people ask me You know, you lived this life And you've had stuff in your past I mean, I was a good kid growing up I didn't do any drugs, I didn't drink I mean, But then I had this time in my adult years Where I just, I followed my flesh And if we realize, and if we're just really honest, we would realize that we all need to resist temptations every day, whether it's pride, whether it's hate, whether it's gossiping. So how do we do that? If you have your Bibles in the the few more minutes that we have left, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And we're just going to look at these two uh, two verses here. And I, I love these two verses because it really helped me to, uh, on how to live this Christian life. I'm going to read it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I look at this passage, and I love how the writer of Hebrews used the metaphor of running to compare that to or to describe the Christian life. Actually, the New Testament writers use that metaphor quite a bit, running. And I really like how the Bible does that. But actually, even though I like this metaphor of running, I personally don't like to run. How many of you guys like to run? Anyone like to run out there? I'm going to pray for you. (laughs) I don't like running. I mean, I think part of the reason is I'm Chinese, and if you haven't noticed, I'm short. And, you know, when you have short legs, that doesn't make you, you know, very fast as a runner. So I don't think I'm built to be a runner. You know, maybe ping pong or badminton or chess, something like that. I can do well at that. But when it comes to running, you know, I'm just not going to excel at that. So you might think, why then, if you don't like running, then you like this metaphor of running and the Christian life? And it's just because of that. Because running for me takes work. Running is hard, right? It takes sweat, tears. I got to work hard. I feel like I'm running uphill the whole time. And that's actually why I like that metaphor. The Christian life is not a bed of roses. Amen? Life is not going to be easy, no matter what people try to tell you. It's hard. Following Jesus is hard, but it's worth it. And so this this passage, I think, is perfect. How do you live life, a faithful life, in the midst of life, in the midst of trials and struggles? So this passage begins with that word, therefore. And I, I don't know if you ever heard anyone say this, but I tell my students at Moody. When you see the word, therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. So why is it there? Well, therefore is like a connecting word. Think about it that way. It connects... What was previously said to what is previously going to be said. So Hebrews chapter 12, what comes before that? Well, Hebrews chapter 11. And what's Hebrews chapter 11? We know that to be the hall of faith. Not the hall of fame, but the hall of faith. So it lists many, many great women and men of God who have gone before us. Abraham, Sarah... Jacob, I mean goes on the judges, and they were faithful and we see those and that they are, they have gone before us and we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. And they're cheering us on, but they're just not spectators. They've actually finished the race and they're calling us forward. But not only do we have the great cloud of witnesses who have already finished the race, we have people that are running the race with us. We have people that are maybe a little bit ahead of us. Running the race. If you've ever played a sport before, you would know about the phrase home court advantage, right? If, you're, if you have the home court advantage, what happens? You run faster, you hit harder, you throw farther. And let me tell you, as Christians, we always have the home court advantage. Amen? We always have the home court advantage. So we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. But then chapter 12, verse 1 goes on and says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. So we need to lay aside sin. Don't hold on to it. We often treat sin like our blankie. You know, remember when you were a little, little baby? You had your blankie. You were tired. You had cling on your blankie. You were, so, you were crying. You would hold on to your blankie. We treat sin like that. We need to Let it go, get rid of it When I was in the Marine Corps I was about 18, 19 years old And at that time I also didn't like running And I I didn't know why my drill instructor didn't care (laughs) He made us run, no matter what And when we ran, most of the time when we ran We didn't run with tennis shoes, shorts, tank top You know what we ran with? Full combat gear. Our combat boots, which often felt like 10 pounds each. We'd run with camouflage, pants, you know, shirt, the whole thing. We'd run with our rifle. Remember, it's not a gun, it's our rifle. And then we'd run with our backpack. I mean, this backpack was huge. So nothing like the cute, you know, little thingies you guys carry around to school, those, you know, with your kids. Not like that. I mean, it was this big backpack. And... We would run with that for miles. I mean, it was 60 pounds. And I was in great shape. So after three months of boot camp, Marine Corps, we go through three months of boot camp. At the end, I was in fantastic shape. So I had furlough for about two weeks, and I went home. And on furlough, I thought, you know, I'm in great shape. I don't like running, but I'm going to continue to run. So I got up early in the morning, and I started running. But I decided not to wear Full combat gear. I didn't want to freak out my guests, my, my, my neighbors. So I ran in jeans. I mean, I, I ran in short shorts, and I ran in tennis shoes, running shoes, and I ran with my tank top. And when I started running, I felt like I was flying. And do you know why? I didn't have my combat boots on. I didn't have my camouflage gear on. I wasn't running with my rifle. And I was not running around with a 60-pound backpack on my back. But unfortunately, many Christians are running this Christian life with a 60-pound backpack on their back, and it's their sin. Get rid of it. Lay aside. Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, if your right right hand causes you to sin, do what? Put it behind your back? Uh Put it in your pocket so you don't look at it. No. No get rid of it, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, put a patch over it, close your eyes, gouge it out. Jesus was telling us we need to be radical when it comes to getting rid of sin. Sin is cancer. Don't treat your sin and toy with it. We need to get it out. Get rid of it. So we need to cut off sin, Third, you need to have, third, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Before you run a race, whether it's 10 kilometers, whether it's 20 kilometers, or whether it's a full marathon, which 26.2 miles, when you run a marathon, you don't wake up one morning and be like, you know what, I think I'm going to run 26.2 miles. No, you don't do that. What happens? You plan, right? For years, like, I think it's nine months. You plan. You have a strategy, and you're going to follow it. You have a schedule. You're going to run so many, you know, that, that length of the time, and, you know, this, and you're going to kind of build it up. till finally, you get ready to run that mile, 26.2. If running a marathon requires a plan, shouldn't the Christian life require a plan as well? Billy Graham, one of the greatest evangelists of all time, In the later part of his life, he didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I don't know how this happened, but I was faithful to God. Wow, that's pretty cool. He didn't say, man, you know, I was faithful to my wife. I don't know how that happened. (coughs) He had a plan. He knew early on in the beginning of his ministry his weakness. He liked pretty women. And because of that, he had some boundaries. A lot of times people say, oh, they're so radical boundaries. You know, that's, you know, he just hated women. No, he hated his sin. We need to be killing sin before it begins killing us. So put to death our sin nature. Paul calls it, we need to mortify the deeds of the body. We need to have that plan. When I travel, I travel, we're away every weekend. And many times even midweek So you know, I'm gone six to eight times a year And I know People on the road, men on the road That's an opportunity For temptation and sin and So my parents and I when, when, when I started traveling I decided you know I know what I'm capable of And I know I have this bullseye on my chest And, and the enemy would love Nothing better for me to fall into sin So I have this policy now that I don't travel alone. I have the blessing now that my mother travels with me everywhere I go, even when I'm speaking in conferences. But, praise the Lord, but I also have the blessing on the weekends where my father also travels together. We need to have a plan. However, with all that said, these first three points that I made, we need to realize that our main goal cannot be to simply not sin. I'll say it again. Our main goal cannot be to simply not sin. What do I mean by that? Because you're thinking, but wait, wait, not sin, that's good. You're right. But that can't be our only goal. Because I know people who wake up in the morning and like, God, you know, you pray to God, and God, just help me to not gossip today. Help me to not be prideful. Help me to not look at pornography. And those are good prayers. But if that's all we're praying, we're setting our goal too low. God wants us to be holy God wants us to be like Christ Many of us are running the race And have no idea what is our goal Can you imagine this marathon? People at the start line They pull the trigger They start running And no one knows where the finish line is What would that be like? Chaos, wouldn't it? Running around I don't know where They're bumping into each other Where's the finish I think it's here No, I think it's there That's what oftentimes we are like when we're running this Christian life. We don't know what is our right and true destination. Christ is that goal. In 1952, there's this lady, young lady. Her name was Florence Chadwick. And she was a swimmer. She actually broke the world record swimming the English Channel in both directions. She wanted to have another challenge. And she wanted to swim from the island of the Catalina Island to the coast of California which happened to be only a mere 26 miles so that required lots of training she trained for months she decided that this this is the one day that she was going to try to swim those 26 miles so she went out in two boats it was her coach her trainer her mother her friend they were there to cheer her on and to help her in case she got tired she got in the water and it was really really cold she stretched and then she started swimming And swimming and swimming, 15 hours later, the fog started rolling in. And it was a thick fog. She couldn't even see in front of her face. The water was colder. Her legs started cramping up. The water was choppy as well. She was swallowing water. She began doubting herself. Her mother was like, you can do this. She kept swimming a little more and then she gave up. They pulled her out of the water, into the boat, and they told her she was only one mile away from the shore. So she said, I'm not going to give up on this. So she trained several more months. And then one morning she went out to to Catalina Island, two boats. Same people, coach, trainer, mother, friend, she got in the water, cold. She stretched a little bit and then she started swimming. And swimming, and swimming. Fifteen hours later, the fog started rolling in and it was thick. Same thing as before. She could barely see in front of her face. Her legs started cramping. She started swallowing water. She began doubting herself. And mother was like, Florence, you know this. You can do this. Her coach was like, come on. We've trained for this. She swam and swam and swam. And finally, she made it to the shore. And when she made it to the shore, a crowd had started to gather, and there were reporters, and they all ran up to her and said, what's the difference this time? I mean, all the other weather conditions were the same. How, why is it that you made it to the shore this time? And you know what she said? It was so profound. She said, this time when I swam, I kept a mental image of the shoreline in my head. Every stroke that Florence took, she did not lose sight of her goal. When we run the race of endurance fix your eyes on Jesus. He is our goal. He is our destination. Let's pray. Father we thank you for Jesus. God I pray that you will help us even in our brokenness Lord God to not give up on hope Lord, we know that even in this room we have people who have prodigals. That you would help us, Lord, run with endurance. And sometimes that means that we need to stand in the gap for our loved ones. That we will not give up on hope because, God, you do what is impossible for man. Help us, Lord God, to be faithful. Help us, God, that as we run this race that we would love you more than life. We praise you, God, and we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus and the people of God said amen.